Thanks, Ian, for the prayer and Engels for the readings. You know, amidst all the conflict in our world, one thing we can agree on across partisan political or social divides is how good it is to see disability access improving in our world. Over the last decade, St Michael's has seen installation of an accessible toilet in the hall, a hearing aid loop in the cathedral, proper disabled ramp access and a disabled parking spot and large print bulletins. Later this year, Anglican churches will be further challenged by new guidelines for a more inclusive church. There's plenty of room for improvement, so it, it's truly easy for a kid in a wheelchair to go to youth group or someone with autism to use their gifts at church. And if you've read about the Jesus clubs for people with intellectual disabilities springing up, you'd pray one might start around Wollongong. The Australian Network on Disability says a disability is any condition that restricts a person's mental, sensory or mobility functions. It may be caused by accident, trauma, genetics or disease. A disability may be temporary or permanent, total or partial, lifelong or acquired, visible or invisible. And the estimate is one in five Aussies experience some form of disability in life. And a disability can be a very big deal, excluding you from access and participation in normal life and leading to discrimination, disadvantage and even abuse as the Royal Commission showed. In tonight's passage, Matthew 9, Jesus meets someone with a disability. He is a paraplegic of some kind. One of my favourite stories in the Gospels because it shows us what Jesus can do with disability. But it also surprises by saying there's something more crucial to address. This incident was also recorded in Mark and Luke's Gospels and Matthew's report is the most concise. So let's learn from what he focuses on. And Matthew 9 opens with the first conflict Jesus has from the religious leaders. They accuse him of forgiving sins without a licence. That's my first point. Former NRL champion forward Sam Burgess got arrested for driving without a licence this week and rightly drug tested. Here Jesus is accused of forgiving without having a licence to do so. Is he guilty? Let's have a look at the action from verse 2. Some men brought to Jesus a paralysed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Just take a moment to sympathise with this bloke. Well, we don't know if his disability was from birth, injury or disease, but he cannot walk. His muscles would have wasted away. Like Morgan Bell, he's in hospital and I visited him this morning, but 15 years and only in his early 40s, a life sentence it seems. He had to rely on others to take him anywhere and to lose that strength and mobility and independence is awful. Now verse 2 is fascinating for a couple of reasons. Firstly for what it tells us of faith. The lovely thing here is what his friends think Jesus can do with disability. They bring their mate to Jesus and it's obvious what they want and it says Jesus could see their faith. Their faith! Not just the disabled man, in fact, he's passive. Verse 1 told us it's Jesus' hometown, Capernaum, where he'd done lots of healing. And these blokes believe he can do the trick with their mate. 
they trust him. This gives us insight into what the Bible means by faith. Contrary to what the sceptics say, faith's not belief without evidence, some kind of power of positive spiritual thinking to try and pump up. No, faith is trust. Relying on someone because you see evidence, they're reliable. In this case, trusting Jesus to get the job done. And notice that your faith can benefit someone else. A paralysed man could have had all the faith in the world but if his mates didn't also believe enough to carry him to Jesus, fight through the crowds, then he was helpless. Now, as a bonus aside, this is just one part of the package of doctrines that lies behind infant baptism of children of believers. Parents trust Jesus and bring their children to him, confident that even little babies can receive blessing from him. And guess what? The Gospels record that Jesus placed his hands on them and did bless them, even though the kids were too young for any faith of their own, at least the babies. Well, here's the second surprise we get from verse 2. It's about the connection of sin and suffering. Because instead of healing the bloke, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. What? I'm sure he's makes us saying, look Jesus, with the greatest of respect, you're missing the point. We didn't come for that spirituality stuff. We just want you to fix him. But Jesus gives him forgiveness instead. Is Jesus saying his disability is caused by sin? It's certainly what some think. You know what goes around, comes around, bad karma. You know, sometimes it's true. You know, continual heavy drinking in your life and you might get liver disease. You speed excessively, you might have a car crash like Tiger Woods this week and maybe end up permanently disabled. Sin can cause suffering. Sometimes there is a clear connection, although if you have an ounce of sympathy, you wouldn't wish it on your enemy, would you? But the Bible is clear that specific suffering is not always caused by specific sin. Check out our excellent six-talk podcast series from the Bible book of Job last year for a reminder and Jesus also denies such a tight connection in Luke 13 and John 9. But at the macro level, the Bible also says we capital S suffer in general because we capital S sin. When the first human, Adam, with his wife Eve, disobeys God, then sin and suffering entered the world. When we ignore and reject God, we suffer and die and are cut off from God forever. That's what the Bible means when it talks of death and judgment and hell. And so Jesus is right. The disabled man needed forgiveness, just like me and you, just like every other human who has ever lived, except Jesus himself. So Jesus was claiming to meet a very deep and desperate need here. But verse 3 shows the religious leaders reckons he was forgiving without a licence. 
At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Now, this is not about forgiving someone personally because they hurt you, calling you a name, telling you a lie. This is more like me saying, I forgive the Christchurch mosque killer, though I had nothing to do with the event. No, only those injured or perhaps the judge in consultation with all the victims could possibly offer forgiveness. Here, the religious leaders object to Jesus offering the general forgiveness of God. It's blasphemous to hand out forgiveness like that. In the Old Testament, the priest had a licence to pronounce God's forgiveness. Usually it was after the sinner admitted his offence and brought the correct animal sacrifice to God, which the priest would kill for him. It was a symbol that sin deserved death, but God would accept a substitute. There's something like a dozen chapters on the animal sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. Guilt offerings, sin offerings, day of atonement sacrifice. Only then did a priest have a license to pronounce God's forgiveness. But Jesus just ups and does it here. No lamb, no dove. And Jesus wasn't a recognised priest or religious leader. How dare he? And so he moved to my second major heading. What's the big deal? From verse 4. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? And literally, it actually says Jesus saw their thoughts. Which certainly means he could read their cranky body language, but he also had supernatural spiritual insight. And just think about that. Jesus sees what you do and knows exactly what you're thinking. And notice that the Bible considers it evil thoughts. He's so keen to deny someone forgiveness and to find alleged errors to blame Jesus for. So he proposes an experiment, verse 5, to help get their thinking straight. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? Which is easier? Now, which is the bigger deal here? Healing or forgiveness? Not so easy to answer. On the one hand, it's easier to say you're forgiven because no one on earth can see for sure if... God really has agreed to wipe your slate clean. We don't go around with flashing lights on our foreheads saying condemned or forgiven. And so it's just hard to disprove the claim. On the other hand, it's obvious in the next 60 seconds whether you can pull off the healing claim because he'll either stand on his feet or still be lying on his stretcher. And so maybe healing is the bigger deal, the harder thing to claim. But verse 6 shows that's not all there is to Jesus' logic. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralysed man, get up, take your mat and go home. He's saying, I will do the observably more difficult physical miracle to prove I have power for the hard to observe but spiritually more important miracle. And bang, verse 7, then the man got up and went home. 
Now remember this miracle is recorded in Matthew, Mark and Luke with some different but consistent details noted in each Gospel. And Luke expressly makes the point that he had consulted eyewitnesses in compiling his account. So let me say it again, Jesus has done the observably more difficult miracle to prove he had all God's authority for the impossible to observe but spiritually crucial miracle of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the really big deal. And I'll come back to that to conclude. But just pause, reflect with me for a moment on the big deal of healing the man because his whole future radically changed. He regains independence. He can work again. Now God occasionally gives us a miraculous answer to prayers for healing. But unlike Jesus, we cannot just go and heal on demand. Although Jesus' example of care for the sick and outcast has inspired Christians down through the centuries to serve in health and aged care, and to assist the disabled, to care for the marginalised. But that's not all the care the man got. He got full healing. And Jesus' miracles are a signpost to the future, a little taste of what heaven is like. 500 years earlier, in Isaiah 35 verse 6, the old prophet predicted a new age of redemption. He says, Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. And the time is coming. Karen's favourite chocolates are Haig's, that old Adelaide family company and you can find the Sydney flagship store at the QVB next to Town Hall. Go into Haig's and they offer tiny little pieces of chocolate to try with silver tongs off a silver platter. It's a foretaste of what will come if you buy a whole box. I knew Karen loved the dark orange chocs. They had several options with orange and so I got to try a few to be sure Uh, and when I had a small bite of one type I knew I'd found the answer. It was a small foretaste of the joy ahead, Christmas magic sorted. In fact, Karen loves them so much she brought a pack as a surprise present for me for our recent wedding anniversary and I managed to figure out it was so I could enjoy the blessing of sharing. Anyway, although Matthew 9 doesn't make the point explicitly, I just want to pause to say this incident is a foretaste of heaven and it promises us that one day in the new creation, Morgan Bell will walk again. Healing the paralysed man is like that little taste of chocolate. There's a whole box of delight coming, friends. But come back to my third and last heading, embracing the biggest deal. Verse 8. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who'd given such authority to man. Are you gobsmacked by Jesus? You're filled with awe. What Jesus can do should blow you away. His compassion and his power 
What do the crowds praise Jesus for here, specifically? That he had given such authority to man. Exactly what authority are we speaking about? It was the same word in verse 6. They should note his authority as son of man on earth to forgive sins. Son of man was an Old Testament title used in Daniel 7 for a human character led into the presence of the Ancient of Days where God himself gave this man authority and everlasting glory to rule the nations on his behalf as king of God's world. And Jesus claims this authority and expresses it in forgiving sins, handing out God's decisive mercy. The Bible says that's the biggest deal between God and you. Imagine there'd been a riot in the crowd after verse 3. You know, after Jesus told the man, your sins are forgiven, but before the dispute was resolved over a licence to do so and everyone had to split for safety. And so imagine Jesus never got the chance to heal the man. I think one application of this story is that he would have gone home still disabled but with his most important needs sorted. Because all the judgement his sins deserve, whatever they were, had been forgiven. Jesus removed the barrier between him and God. And so he was already on his way to the healing of heaven. Forgiveness is the theme that brackets the entire biography of Jesus, from his birth to his death. Remember in Matthew 1, Joseph is told to still marry his unexpectedly pregnant fiancée Mary and Matthew 1.21, you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. It's the biggest deal. But come with me to the night before Jesus died, just before Judas was betray, betrayed him, where Jesus was eating the Passover meal, uh, the celebration meal with his disciples. It's Matthew 26. Remember I said the religious leaders thought Jesus had no licence to forgive, certainly not without a sacrifice and without a priest. And they were kind of right. You know the Old Testament law is still God's revelation. God did demand a sacrifice to satisfy his justice, to turn aside his anger, to cover over sin. But the Old Testament also kept saying he didn't really need animals. So look to Matthew 26, verses 27 and 8, for how Jesus explained his imminent death. Then he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The perfect sacrifice. His blood on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. It's there at his birth. It's there at his death. It was a really big deal for that disabled man and it's the biggest deal of all for you. Have you embraced God's forgiveness?
personally admitted you need it and trusted the cross was for you. You could translate verse 8 more literally as the crowds were afraid because they saw Jesus' supreme goodness and they knew he had the power to decide whether or not they were forgiven. Don't muck around with that. And so if you've never realised before that you need it, well then ask Jesus tonight. And you know, if you downplay the corporate prayers of forgiveness, we Anglicans often pray together as some throwaway formal tradition, well, slow down and remind yourself exactly what it cost Jesus so you could pray a prayer like that again and again. One of the most important Christians in the last hundred years may not be an evangelist like the great Billy Graham or a pastor author like John Piper but a quadriplegic from a diving accident aged 17 the year before I was born. Her name is Johnny Erickson Tata and she has known extreme depression and pain. Early on she wanted to die. But on the 50th anniversary of the accident she wrote, if I were to nail down suffering's main purpose I'd say it teaches me who I really am because I'm not the paragon of virtue I'd like to think I am. Suffering keeps knocking me off my pedestal of pride. The core of God's plan is to rescue me from sin and self and to keep rescuing me. I'm in constant need of saving. My displaced hip and scoliosis are sheepdogs that constantly snap at my heels, driving me down the road to Calvary where I die to the sins Jesus died for. Sure, she says, I have a long way to go before I am whom God destined me to be in glory. But thankfully, my paralysis keeps pushing me to strive to reach for that heavenly prize.